0: Now, uh, today, we are going to continue this sort of series that we've been doing. You might even call it a series within a series. We've been studying the armor of God. That was sort of our summer series, and we'll see this through to the end of summer, which is still in front of us. We have a few weeks left. And This comes from Ephesians chapter 6, and the title of this teaching is Standing Firm because the general premise of what this section teaches us is how we can follow Jesus in a way that helps us to to really uh, not just survive, but to actually grow and to flourish on earth? How is it that we can stand firm in him and end our days well following him? In other words, pursue him for all the days of our life. And so over these past weeks, we've been studying what Paul refers to as the shield of faith. And we discussed, generally speaking, how everyone in the world trusts in something and how the key to applying this faith truth in the Christian life, for those of us that have professed faith in Jesus. So we moved from talking about the general idea of faith. Faith simply defined as a, a hope or a trust in something or someone. In Christianity, hope is defined as faith or trust in Christ. And that's why we read briefly this story from John 4, because we, we have a good example of two types of people. We'll look at one today and one next week that had some type of hope or trust in Jesus. One was valid, one was invalid. And so we've moved from this general idea of faith to a very particular understanding of faith in Christ. And the way that we can live out the shield of faith, raise it, is by regularly asking ourselves if we knowingly or unknowingly have begun to trust in something that isn't Jesus to satisfy us in life in a way only Jesus can. It's an incredibly easy pitfall to fall into. We have no shortage of shortages of options or things to, to sort of get into in this world. And so it would make sense that we would be the types of people who who know, in order to remain spiritually vital in Christ, we have to think about this on occasion. Then we talked about, last week, how Paul likens our faith in Jesus to the raising of a shield on a battlefield. And so today, I want to look at the idea of faith from a different angle. We've sort of been exploring it from a few perspectives. Today, I want to look at one of the main things that will keep us from experiencing the type of robust faith we've been talking about over these past weeks. Defined faith, we looked at faith in action, Today we're going to look at the, the thing that might actually keep us from experiencing the kinds of grace that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. We're going to look at an example of questionable faith in John 4. Without the Bible, there are lots of examples of both genuine but imperfect faith and lots of examples of what is a broken faith, meaning like folks that believed they had faith but really didn't. Perhaps in the New Testament, the Pharisees are one of the greatest examples. They were not only teachers of the law, they were sort of icons Uh, really, really strong, well-known people that were supposed to help people understand what it meant to know God well. And they actually did not know him themselves. And so it can very much be, at times in our lives, maybe maybe we're missing the mark when it comes to faith, or maybe we're at a season in life where our faith is challenged. What I'd like to talk about today is the thing, the main thing anyways, that can keep us from flourishing in the truths we've already discussed. And in this text in John 4, we'll refer to it lightly. It's sort of a springboard to a bigger idea I want to talk about. But in that text, Jesus has this interaction with a type of faith. And here's where it's tricky. It's a type of faith that looks good on the outside, but is really false on the inside. It's, it's, an, it's not a genuine faith, but it has the appearance of faith. So this interaction between Jesus and, according to the text, a group of Galileans stands as a warning. They're, this is sort of a, a, a people group. In the New Testament, that's the, the, for this uh, teaching anyways, they suffice to give us an example, like an archetype example, of a type of faith. And in this teaching, we are given sort of some warnings, some things we need to be mindful about, things we need to avoid in our lives when it comes to faith. And this leads me to the only truth I want to share with you this morning. It's sort of a stacking principle layered onto what we've discussed. We're assuming now that people have placed their faith in Jesus. And so if you are the person who has placed your faith in Jesus— it's important to regularly examine if your faith is really in Jesus. And I want to be very, very clear here before we proceed. I'm not telling you that when you genuinely place faith in Jesus, you need to be fearful of losing that faith, that God is sort of some you know, cruel or malevolent God who, who teases you with the idea of knowing him deeply and permanently and then revokes that from you when you err. That is not at all what I mean by examining whether or not your faith is really in Jesus. What I want to talk about today is the fact that we can fully be following Jesus in our lives, but have moments where we really are distracted by things. There can be times in life when we look to things to satisfy us like Jesus that only Jesus can. And the problem with this is that we can actually self-deceive ourselves, and that's, I think, exactly what happens in Galilee, with the Galileans. So it's sort of important for us to be the type of people that examine things. And I want to reread one verse, or two verses, of what was just read to you a moment ago, because this is really what we're going to use as a springboard to move forward. In John 4, 43 through 45, Jesus is walking around town. He's doing his his thing. It's the beginning of his ministry. He is revealing himself to the world. People are beginning to know him as a great prophet, a great teacher. But something perhaps more important to the people is that they find out that he is a guy that can perform miracles. Keep in mind, there weren't hundreds of them, but the handful of miracles that he had done up to this point in the text thus far, were really the word was spreading, and people got excited about that. And so after two days, he left to go to Galilee. This is where our story picks up. And in this book, John tells us in brackets, now Jesus himself had pointed out that prophets have no honor in their own country. This is something he's mentioned before. And we go to find out that when he arrives in Galilee, the Galileans welcome him. And they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Canaan, Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. So you have this interesting story here. And the type of faith we read about in John 4 looks like faith, but it really isn't true faith. And I want to explain what I mean by that. This is very important to note, because it really affirms that the ideas that we've been communicating over these past weeks, that everyone has placed their faith in something. And in John 4, this gets taken a step further. Here we learn that those of us who claim to be in Christ, these are people literally following Jesus. They show up to follow him. Here we see that these people are really challenged to self-examine whether or not their faith is truly in Christ. Or, what happens in this text, something that Jesus offers them. Those are the two poles we're going to talk about this morning. Is our love and affection for Jesus proper? Or is our love and affection for Jesus based on something that we think he can give us? Those are two different types of faith, two different types of love, and in our earthly perspectives, they're two different types of relationship. If you were you know, with somebody, a friend or a spouse that loved you because they love you, that's a pretty meaningful thing. But if you were with somebody that loved you because they could get something from you, we would consider that a not-so-great thing, a highly abusive thing. And those are the two poles I want to kick around this morning or talk about. So the way John describes this whole faith event between Jesus and the Galileans is kind of interesting. John is one of the best written Gospels. He's he's kind of a master storyteller. And there's a, a clue in this that gives us an understanding of how we know the Galileans had this type of faith. It's a literary clue in brackets. It's sort of like he makes a commentary about the commentary. And missing this means we've missed the faith truth Jesus wants us to hold on to here. We'll never raise the shield of faith like Paul speaks about if we miss the idea here. This is a false shield. In verse 43, John points out that something in this story is not correct. It's out of sorts. And between how Jesus says his countrymen should respond to him, the idea that prophets are not honored in their hometown. In other words, he's saying there should be something sketchy about this. But for some reason in this story, he is celebrated as a hero. And so while he should be getting a not-so-warm welcome, he gets an incredibly warm welcome. And on the surface level, what happens here is this type of faith, the types of crowds that have gathered before him, they appear to trust Jesus. But deep down, something about the way they look to Jesus isn't right. You can see this in other places in the New Testament. So, for example, in other miracles that Jesus has performed, like where he turns you know, a handful of loaves of bread and fish into enough to feed thousands, what happens is a ton of people show up to get the free food, but a much smaller group of people stay with him to follow him after the miracle. And so this is a common thing that takes place in the gospel of John. It's a common thing that takes place today. And both John and Jesus know exactly what the concern is. Jesus's discernment lets him know that the kind of faith that is being brought to him is not the kind of faith that God actually wants us to have in him. And I want to explain what I mean by this. Earlier in his gospel, And again here, I gave you a narrative story, the the feeding of the masses through fish and bread. Here's a a particular commentary Jesus makes before we even see some of these things happening. John tells us all throughout the gospel that there are many people who look to Jesus. And these folks are almost always defined as folks who are looking for signs and wonders. They get their own little designation. And when he refers to these people, what he's saying is, is they're actually looking to Jesus for something, not necessarily to look for Jesus. And what he communicates is that these crowds are untrustworthy. Jesus would not, he would not not trust them unless there was a reason. And so in John 2, we read this, it'll be behind me. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, this is the thing he just came from, where it has spread to bring him where he is now. While he was in, the, in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. For he knew what was in the hearts of all people. Now, if you know the life of Jesus, you know, especially because of what he did for us on the cross, that Jesus readily entrusts himself to us. The cross was the great example of him destroying all the barriers that keep us from knowing God well, deeply, and intimately through Jesus. So it begs the question why does a God who offers himself to all people not trust him, entrust himself to this group of people? Something is not right. It isn't that there's a problem with Jesus wanting to reveal himself to people. There's a problem with the approach that people are taking to him. In other words, he can't entrust himself to people who, who are not genuine in what they ask for. And what we learn in these verses, what we see with the fish and the loaves, what we can often experience in our lives, is these crowds have a, a type of faith, a version of faith. But it isn't the genuine type of faith Paul writes about in Ephesians. And We could even say that they practice a dangerous faith, one that I want to call for the remainder of our time, transactional faith. And what this means is they placed their faith in Jesus, they showed up to meet Jesus, they followed Jesus, not necessarily because they had a genuine love and adoration for him, rather because they wanted to use him to get something out of him. They wanted in on that life-prospering miracle stuff they'd been hearing about. That's why John tells us, The word had spread about what he just did. And he returned to Cana. He's in this area now, right, where where the first miracle was performed. So we get this idea that people in this region know what Jesus is capable of. And because of this, they start showing up to see him. And the reason this is a common yet dangerous form of faith, this idea of transactional faith, the reason it's so problematic is because it's a faith that is steeped in the trading of services. I've talked about this idea many years ago when we talked about the concept of covenant in the Bible. Covenant is very different than a contract. A contract essentially says, like for example, I was talking to some of our people earlier today about the contracts we have with the corporate offices of Regal. Contracts are based on, on the reciprocation of two services. And the way that this works here is we pay Regal rent and Regal lets us meet here. If Regal ever stopped letting us meet here, we would not pay them rent. And if we start paying regal rent, they would not, out of the benevolence of their hearts, let us meet in these theaters. That's a contract. When one of the persons backs out of the contract, the contract is broken. This is the idea that we're trying to speak against here. The idea of covenant, for example, is that Jesus says, listen, I've gone to the cross for you, and when you place your faith in me, even when you walk away from me, I'm not walking away from you. In other words, his love, his keeping of his word in our lives is not any longer based on what we do. It's based on what he said he would do and what he did. And that is a very different type of relationship. One is about the mutual trading of services, contract, transaction. The other is about the fact that Jesus loves us so deeply, he commits to be with us. It's like the vows in marriage, till death do us part. He's going to be with us even in the days when we are not wanting to be with him. One is a very rich and selfless form of relationship. The other is very contractual. And what happens here is we're beginning to see what happens when when God offers the world a very rich type of faith, but people want the contract. In short, what happens here is these folks in the text have a very particular set of expectations they want Jesus to satisfy for them. And they believe if they offer him faith, they believe if they show up and follow him, they're going to get granted their desires. In other words, we're here, do what we want. And they practice a counterfeit faith. It is no less than that. And it's a faith we see all throughout the Bible. And what is it? Well, I'll put a tag on it. Trading your faith in Christ to get something from Christ isn't really faith. That's the idea of transaction. To trade something with Jesus to get something from Jesus isn't really faith. In fact, this is not a sermon necessarily, at least particularly, about the doctrine of grace. But if this were the case, we'd be in a lot of trouble if we actually understand what grace is in the Bible. Grace is Jesus essentially putting it all in front of us, knowing he's going to get very little from us. And he still does it because of his love for us. And so I want to give you an example of this. This idea of uh, transactional faith. If you do any reading, uh, you know, throughout history, there have been certain movements, both healthy and unhealthy, that have sort of attached themselves to the local church. We saw great missionary movements across the pond many years ago. Uh, We had the great uh, revival-type movements in America hundreds of years ago. There are certain eras of the church that really indicate certain things. They're, they're, They're seasons, you might say, some really healthy, some not so healthy. And one of the the most common seasons, one of the ones actually most spoken against in modern Christianity, one season you might say that has grown very popular in faith over the years is something called the prosperity gospel. I'm just curious if any of you have ever heard of this. Okay, this is great. So better than half of you have actually heard of this idea. I want to talk a little bit about this. So the prosperity gospel seems to take root in places where there is a lack of solid scriptural teaching. In other words, there's minimal gospel. Uh, The Bible is sort of bent into forms to make it say something that it doesn't necessarily say. And connected to that is often a a lack of a heart-deep knowledge about who God truly is and how he has chosen to relate to us. So what happens is, is you have people who stand in rooms like this and they communicate truths that are not really truths from the Bible. And then you have people that don't read the Bible to the degree where they can actually discern, like Jesus does here, where the problems are. And in this flavor of faith... People base the foundation of their faith on God being a great provider. Now, none of us in this room would disagree with this statement. I wouldn't. God is a great provider. We read about this in regular... All throughout the Bible, God's provision for us, even through life eternal, right? This is something that God is. We could even say it's one of the characteristics that makes him so great. So it isn't the character of God here being a God that's a provider. There's a problem in what people expect him to provide. And so folks in this camp tend to spend their days asking, and asking if you do this long enough turns into expecting God to bless them in very particular ways. And the most common way that God is expected to bless people is almost always in some form of excess luxury. This is just the science of it. If you read about this in the world, what tends to happen is a lot of people get taken advantage of, and it almost always has to do with something about resources. So people begin to believe that the way God evidences his love for us is by providing excess forms of luxury. And they usually revolve around incredibly large sums of money or incredibly expensive material items. This is the evidence of how great your faith is, whether or not God provides these things for you. And in other words, God determines your level of faith, God looks at you and decides he looks at your faith and then says, I'm going to accordingly trade luxury items for you. It's crazy when you think about it. And I have read that the luxury items God perverse, uh, excuse me, prefers to provide, it's Italian stuff because I've heard God is very fond of Italian leather and engineering, right? So there are great luxuries on earth. Many of them are beautiful. But you've got to wonder when you think about your relationship with Christ if the end game of it all was for him to provide. I'm not even using the word luxury. I'm using the word excess luxury because that's what it always revolves around. And so in this faith paradigm, rather naturally, when God doesn't give you what you ask for, it's seen as a sign of weak faith. This is the literal response. If I were to teach this here and you were to come to me and say, Anthony, I got a ton of faith, but I didn't get that luxury leather. What's going on? My only response to you in this system of belief is, well, you don't have enough faith. You got to have more faith. Also, give me $500. That's usually what follows that type of teaching. There's some great problems with this what happens here is you, you really begin to miss who God is. The lack of provision in these areas becomes a sign of weak faith. And we start to say things like well, we feel like we're missing something that, that God is not providing for us. Now, unfortunately, there's not really any solid explanation for, for how God does not provide or why he doesn't provide things, except for the fact that you, you don't have enough faith. There is no teaching that I've ever heard that makes a great space for maybe God has heard your request in this faith paradigm, and he has deemed what you ask for unnecessary out of his character, that can happen too. In other words, he's not going to provide us with something that's going to reflect poorly on him and us, and it might even be bad for our lives. There might be things in these paradigms that we ask for that God has just, in his wisdom, says, this is not good for you. I will not afford you this thing. And while the craziness of this, this is really... Really what I want to drive home on, so don't miss the transition here. Well, the craziness of the prosperity gospel might seem obvious in the examples where people believe God's sole purpose in life is to shower them with personal excess luxuries. This is one of the greatest things written about today. A lot of writing, tons of writing, because it's spread in parts of the world. There's a large constituency of men and women who love Jesus that are writing against this. What I want to say here is that this brand of transactional faith, we look at it, and to one degree, we might even look at this and condemn it, But this brand of transactional faith has a way of sneaking itself into the lives of people who would outright say this is ridiculous, people just like you and me, when we apply the same uh, expectation formula to the things we think we need to prosper in life. So let me give you some other examples, maybe some examples that might be closer to home to you and I. Sometimes we feel our faith in Jesus has grown stale or that he doesn't care about us when the outcome of a life situation looks differently than our desire. Like when we ask God to go to a certain school, or we ask God for a certain job, or to find a certain type of boyfriend, or a certain type of girlfriend, or a certain type of spouse. These are all expectations we have, and we pray in earnest for God to provide these things. And when he doesn't, we get angry or frustrated. We, we have a crisis of faith. We might even step away from God because the transaction has not been met the way we want to, the way we want to see it met. It's when we ask God to get a certain promotion, possibly, or to maintain a certain lifestyle, or to see our children be accepted in certain academic, athletic, or social circles. Maybe our world is rocked when our vision for our children does not look like the vision we had in our head. Maybe our requests revolve around God doing certain things in our own lives, like we grieve in an area, and we know the Bible says God is the great healer, but we want to know why we still linger with scars. Maybe we want a greater platform to serve Jesus Like you are literally playing God, praying, God, provide me a greater space to serve you. And that space doesn't seem to grow to the places you thought it would. The list of things we can ask for are limitless. And a great many of them are good things. So our faith crisis usually arises when we ask for something but don't get it. And if you think about it, this is the thing I find most troubling, if you will, about all the writing about the prosperity gospels. It seems to be written about things going on on the other side of the world but I wish somebody would write an article about what's going on on our side of the world, and maybe I'll write one and submit it and see where it goes. Because if you think about it, this is the same type of attitude. It's just applied to different things. This is truly just a more practical version of this prosperity gospel. And the way you can know if you have a genuine or a transactional faith is in how you respond to the outcome of what you've asked for. There are lots of ways that things can be responded to by God, but there are really two main ways I want to mention briefly. If you ask for something or you pray for something and you have great faith in a certain area of life and it doesn't work out the way you expected. are you wrecked when you don't get your expected outcome? In other words, does your boat of faith moor itself on the beach? Do you trust on the other end of the spectrum or do you trust there could be and likely are very good reasons God has moved in a different direction maybe stayed his hand on what you are asking for, or, or really just moved in a, in a direction entirely different than what you thought. One aspect of this, being wrecked, although I, I would, I would want to say that we can margin for this, simply meaning I don't think God is a God that does not afford us the space to, to process this and grow in how he responds to us when it's different than what we expect. But I also know God's desire is that we not essentially throw our versions of spiritual temper tantrums when he doesn't provide what we ask for. I think the idea of faith, is that we, to a certain degree, know there might be reasons why God is working in a direction differently than what we expect. And we learn to put some faith in that, that if we look at the pedigree of our lives, God has been kind and good to us, even in difficult seasons of life. So one good way to figure out whether or not you have a transactional faith or a real relationship, faith relationship with Christ, is whether or not you are wrecked when you don't get an expected outcome. Another indicator of you having a transactional faith is really going to be buried in what your prayer life looks like. So if you don't pray at all, or if you pray very little, and then when you do pray, if it always revolves around something you need or want, this can be a real indication of, of a very sophisticated form of prosperity. In other words, you only go to God when you recognize you need fill in the blank to prosper your life in a certain way. And those are some of the things that I just mentioned, some of the more practical ways. These are not all, but they are some of the marks of transactional faith. Probably the two biggest ones that cover a great host of ground. And whether these things are taking place abroad, excess luxuries in other parts of the world, or in our own hearts in what might seem like mundane, but they are very important ways, we have to be mindful of this. And I want to give you a contrasting idea of what a faith that deeply loves Jesus looks like. What does a prayer life or an expectation look like when somebody is deeply praying to Jesus because they love Jesus, they know there's a host of things we receive from Jesus, but they're not in it to, to get. They're in it because they love Jesus, and the getting is just the, it's like the, the, the cherry on top of the Sunday. Unfortunately, you never hear people in this faith tradition saying things like, you know, God, help me to be more humble. That's a pretty hard thing to pray for. It's an incredibly valuable thing. It's worth more than every dollar bill in the world to live a life of humility on earth. But people don't pray for it or rarely do. What about the folks in this tradition praying to be more generous or more sacrificial like you, Christ? You hardly ever hear them say, God, help me to embody, you know, all that I am, all that you are, all the kingdom values that Jesus showed Help me to live in this way. Help me to live for others in the way that Jesus died for me. Help me, God, to forgive those who offend me and to pour myself out for the causes of Christ. Help me to see the brokenness and the hurt that permeates our world and, and even my own life. Help me to see and sense these things. And help me not only to experience your grace, your healing grace, but, but compel me to show it to others. Help me, God, compel me to show the same care and affection that you shower with me with to the people in my life that need it. Help me to, I'll say it another way, help my faith to look something like what Paul prays for in Colossians 4, 2 through 4. And before we attach Paul as some superhero in the faith, I want you to know that this prayer is reflective of the Great Commission. It's reflective of the main thing God asked us to do before Jesus ascended into heaven. Here's a prayer that is not like what we just spoke about. It actually is rooted in, in a very deep and rich relationship with Christ. Colossians 4, 2-4, Paul says this. Devote yourselves to prayer. Being watchful, in other words, being mindful, be aware of what's going on and what you're asking for, but also be thankful. And then he asks the people of the Colossian church, he says, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. This is a very different prayer It's a prayer that I'm confident was not uttered once by Paul. We see it in some of his other writings. It is a prayer that is deeply connected to somebody who who has a fervor for Christ, who has received immeasurable riches from Jesus. I mean, Paul Paul sensed grace in his life from uh, Jesus in amazing ways. So Paul is not without want. uh, Excuse me, he's not without when it comes to Christ. He has provided great things for him. But what we see here is that the more he has received from Jesus, the more he has grown in Jesus, the more his prayer life is focused on helping others experience these same things. And so you see these types of faith, these requests, how we pray, what we think about, the way we respond when Jesus works in a way we expect or doesn't work in a way we expect, these are evidences of of the type of faith we have. And the reason John records this brief statement this Galilean transactional faith story is so that we can see that this type of faith isn't just restricted to the Galileans or extreme versions of what we consider heresies on the other side of the world. This type of faith, if we're not watchful, can be a common one that we embrace. It's one that we can still see today, and it's one that I would say is equally prevalent in our side of the, co- of the world. It just manifests itself in different ways. And if we're not mindful, it might actually manifest itself in our own lives. And so please hear me here. I'm in no way discouraging any of you for praying for much of what I just mentioned. Praying for jobs and kids and family. These are really good prayer requests. And they're things we should offer to God. One of the things God says to us is he wants us to bring everything to him. So don't hear me saying, like, don't pray for these things. I'm just simply saying, if our prayer, if our request to God, if our faith and our love and our trust in God is contingent upon God doing what we ask the way we ask it, when we ask it, then there is a good and growing chance that at some point we are going to miss the true heart of faith and we're going to remake God into our own image. And that's exactly what happened here. Everybody showing up to Jesus said, this is the guy that does the miracles. And so what they did is, as great as Jesus' miracles were, they reduced Jesus to like one small fraction of who he really was. They didn't even get why he did the miracles. Every miracle Jesus performs in the New Testament is a sign meant to lead people to a greater evidence of the kingdom of God. He doesn't just heal the sick to heal the sick. He heals the sick because he's saying, this is a premonition of what I'm going to do on the cross. I'm going to deal with all the sickness of the world, physical, spiritual, and emotional. Everything he did was painting a bigger picture of what he was about to do. And this is why this is such a great problem. We will literally rewire God into our own image. And when he doesn't give us what we want, our version of that miracle, whatever it is, then we will likely abandon our faith. And I might even remove the word likely here because this is the only perceivable outcome when you have a relationship based on transaction. It's a math equation that can't be adjusted. You stay because of what you get. And if you don't get what you want, you don't stay. That formula does not change. That's the essence of transaction. Believing like this will cause us to miss out on who God really is because at the end of the day, true to form, you wind up loving the sign or the wonder of God more than what you think about how God sees you or how God actually loves you. You more love what you think God can do for you than the actual God of the, one who can do, the God who can do something for you. Logically speaking, when God doesn't act the way you think he should, you, you stop loving him or you blame him. And your faith, if there is any, really does begin to suffer because it's built on a very sandy, a very faulty foundation. And this is something that I say with no judgment. This is something we all suffer from at times in large part because of the the fragility of faith in our lives at times. But we also live in a world that reinforces this idea. It's perhaps best seen in ideas like karma. You know, if I'm nice to you, people should be nice to me. Problem with that is when you're nice to people and then somebody's not nice to you when you pull out of this parking lot, it begins to break down. It's the idea that when you put something into life, you should always get something equal or better out of life. So if I pray to God about something good, I should get something good or gooder. That's what people think. And I guess to a certain degree, you know, we can say that this is actually true when it comes to our faith. When we pray to God and ask for things or approach him, when we have faith in him, we are destined to get greater things. Je- Jesus actually says that. The key, though, is making sure we understand what the most important thing we can get from God is. And it is not a sign and wonder. It's a meaningful relationship with him through Jesus. That's the greatest evidence of faith, is that we, we, we pare away all the distractions in life and we see that the true beauty of following God is knowing his son. And so you see, we really short sell true faith when we miss out on the beautiful truth that the best gift God could have ever given us has already been given to us. And anything on top of that is great. But to miss that foundation of faith, it's, it's rooted in being something that is, that is an amazing opportunity. It's something that provides us a deep and meaningful way to know Jesus. This is the foundation of faith. If we long for something else that isn't that, then what happens is we have a very faulty faith. And it will cause us to miss the epicenter of what faith is all about. And this is what happens in John 4. I mean, the sad part about this, not even with these people, but maybe they got the miracle. That's it. Maybe the folks were happy that they got fish and bread one day. But if you think about all the other stuff Jesus has offered you, like if you put on the scale of economy, what Jesus has promised to be for you in this life and the next, and you wait on the scale of a couple of pieces of fish and bread, there's no question which way that scale leans. And so we ultimately short sell ourselves here. And that's the moral of this story. The Galileans loved what they thought Jesus would do for them more than they actually loved Jesus. That's what happens here. This is contrasted with the faith story we're going to look at next week about this royal official. In fact, at this point, okay, these two stories, they're beginning to show us the two tensions of faith in the New Testament. At this point in the Gospel of John, it's fair to say this this is becoming an established type of faith. People are caught up in the hype. And it's become a common impediment to people that really want to trust Jesus. Because every time somebody embraces this, they miss Jesus. And I, I want to leave you with, it's a, it's a quote. I'll make a couple of comments about it. But this is how I want to wrap up this morning. This is from somebody I've, I've mentioned in this room before. His name is Leslie Newbigin. There have been a handful of people, um, both living and dead. He's one of the heroes of the faith that has passed away. That have really shaped my understanding of life and following Jesus. And in particular, the importance of Christian mission. Uh, Leslie Newbegin, a British missionary to India, uh, a pretty um, crazy smart scholar, but a pastor, which is what I love about him. Brilliant in the mind and application on the field. It's very hard to find people like this. And so he's written a ton of things about all kinds of things. But I think one of the greatest things he's ever written is a commentary on the Gospel of John, and it's called The Light Has Come. And so he says something about the understanding of faith here that I want to mention to you. There's two quotes I want to share with you. They'll be behind me. And he's, he's talking about this faith event here. He says, A belief, okay, or a faith, a trust, a hope, a belief which requires signs and wonders, is one which lays down in advance the conditions which are required to authenticate any alleged revelation of God. It is thus guilty of putting the constructions of the human imagination, often a very pious imagination, in the place of God. And then he goes on to say, This kind of belief is not a response to God as he actually reveals himself, for God's revelation may be very different than our predetermined view of what God must be and do. And he goes on to say, this is sort of the crux of his commentary, he says, the demand for God to prove himself to us through signs, through these types of expectations, makes the one who demands the sign sovereign over God because he has himself determined the tests by which God must prove himself to us. I want to read that to you again. A belief which requires signs and wonders is one which lays down in advance the conditions which are required to authenticate any alleged revelation of God. It is thus guilty of putting the constructions of the human imagination, often a very pious imagination, in the place of God. This is what I meant when I said we remake God in our image. It's a very limited imagination. He goes on to say this kind of belief is not a response to God as he actually reveals himself. We're not in awe of God in responding. Because God's revelation may be very different than our predetermined view of what God must be and do. This is his polite way of saying we're going to miss God if this is the way we look to him. He goes on to say the demand for God to prove himself to us through the signs makes the one who demands the signs sovereign over God. We become God in the relationship because he has himself determined the tests by which God must prove himself to us. So it's no longer God says my proof that I love you is Christ. We say, hey, Christ, that's a good, that's okay. That's a really neat story, but actually give me this job or provide me that Italian leather, then I'll know you're real. Think about the reduction of imagination. We actually use the word imagination in our planting trainings quite a bit, and we tell people that when you start a church or when you think about mission and vision, you need to let God have a bigger imagination than yours. And that's often where I think we fail. God has an incredibly broad imagination about what he wants to do in the world, and oftentimes our restrictive understandings of him is not going to stop him from doing what he wants to do but it might stop him from doing what he desires to do in our lives. And that's the cardinal fail in this. They missed out on God. And so you see New Beginners trying to show us that believing like this means you've chosen to see your own truth, not God's truth, as the authoritative voice that guides your life. You've made a voice more important than God's, and it's your own. And what happens is is we we no longer see God for as as he is, who he's revealed himself to be. We start seeing him for the way we think he should be. And if he doesn't fit that mold enough, then we just stop seeing him. And consequently, when we demand that he prove himself on our terms to us, what happens is it's kind of funny how the priorities that are God's priorities are typically your priorities. It isn't that we read of in the scriptures of who Jesus is and what he did and how he lived his life and we say, I want to be like this. We start saying like, hey, God, I need you to be like me. It's, so, it's sort of funny how restrictive even the, even the priorities of, of God's kingdom are. And they usually reflect what matters most to us. The reason the faith problem we're looking at today is so preposterous, and that's the right word, it's it's an exercise in human arrogance. It's it's this is what we talked about two weeks ago. We try to discuss the fact that everybody has faith in something, and this is a connection to that. Because once again, what's happening here is people are trying to sell God short of who He actually is. Like God says, "I am God," and we say, "No, actually, you're just a guy that made great wine in Cana, or you're a guy here that actually, you know, um, we we think uh, you can feed us today." God's grandness, like the bigness, the awesomeness of God, is reduced to these little ideas, these small little categories. And they're the categories we value most. We sell Him short, but ultimately sell ourselves short. And so this morning, as we wrap up, I ask you to really consider faith in a different way. What does your faith look like? Is your faith based on taking God on His terms? Or are you subversively asking God to follow you on on your own terms? The first kind of faith will lead you to a genuine knowledge of the goodness and grace of Jesus. It'll, it'll help you to see God more clearly. The latter is a common one, not just on the other side of the world. It's a conditional type of faith, a transactional type of faith, that will truly rob us of the joy that Jesus offers us. You can't lift that shield. It's made out of straw, and eventually it will burn up when the fiery darts of the evil one come, like we discussed last week. And so as we close this morning, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about the kind of faith you have in him? What is it you look to for hope? And if it is Jesus, are you, are you praying for the same types of hope that God has offered us in the scripture? Are, are your prayers, is your faith in line with the type of faith God has offered us in Christ? Or is it in a different place? And hear this. This is the last thing I, I, I will say. It doesn't matter where you are right now. You might be so properly rooted in the healthy faith that it's amazing. If this is you, then I would say pass that on to somebody, disciple somebody, help them to grow in this. If you're coming from the other end of the spectrum and you realize that you've been treating God like a car salesman, nothing against car salesmen, but you only go see a car salesman when you want to buy a car. If this is the way you've been treating Jesus, then know not that it's okay, but God is a God of infinite grace. And what he wants more than anything is for you to know that and to sense that and to move in the direction to be able to move away from that to get to know the person that wants to know you deeply, not just what he can offer you. And so ask yourself as we close this morning, what is Jesus saying to you about the kind of faith you have in him, and what is it you'll do about it?